We turn to Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans, the third chapter. We read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 2, which introduces the first part of the Heidelberg Catechism, the knowledge of our misery. We hear the inspired word of God. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that thou mayest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. Or then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded unto my lie, unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not 
also the, of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. May God bless his word to our hearts. In connection with that passage, as well as others to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 2. It's found in the back of our Psalters on page 3. Lord's Day 2, question 3. Whence knowest thou thy misery out of the law of God? What doth the law of Christ require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly, Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, man's knowledge has increased by many fold over the past years. Constantly, knowledge is increasing. More books are written, more information is gleaned, and the amount of things to learn today is far more than it was years ago. And we see that evident among our children. What they learn now in first and second grade are things that we used to learn not until third or fourth grade. With all that increase, man grows in his ability to understand this world. He understands atomic energy. He understands thermodynamics and nuclear power. He delves into the knowledge of genetic research. And attempts are being made to find cures to various diseases, diabetes, cancer, through genetic research. Tremendous breakthroughs are being made, and we're thankful for that, and we stand in awe. There's not much that man does not understand. But yet there's one form of knowledge regarding which there's been little, if any, development. The knowledge of man's misery. It's true that man is miserable, and man understands and knows that misery. And he would acknowledge a deal of suffering in his life because of evil and because of sorrow and adversity. But though man knows that death surrounds him on every side, he tries to escape that knowledge. And he tries to escape that knowledge in all kinds of different ways. But no matter what men and women try to do to escape that knowledge of their misery, the fact remains, everybody knows, there's something seriously wrong in the midst of this world. And that has an influence on them. They know there's a God, and they know they will have to stand before that God in order to give testimony of their life and their walk. But they try to escape that knowledge. The Heidelberg Catechism now directs us to that knowledge. 
And the purpose and intent of the Heidelberg Catechism is to teach us the true seriousness of who we are by nature so that we understand how desperate our need is for a Savior. As we noted last time, we won't know true comfort unless we understand, first of all, our need for that comfort. This knowledge of sin and misery is not part of the general education that one is going to learn in the midst of our society. This is not even a knowledge that's common to all men. To attain this knowledge, it's not the matter of a course of study that you can take up and at the conclusion take a test and now you demonstrate that you know and understand. Books have been written on the so-called problem of evil, but that still doesn't get at the heart of the trouble. The most learned man can put together everything he understands and, and still miss it, while the most simple individual displays a wisdom. And that's the knowledge that the catechism identifies here. It's a knowledge that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of his children to give them to know, I am a sinner. And I'm not just a sinner, I'm sinful. And by nature, there is no chance for me escaping that sin and that sinfulness. The standard, the criteria against which I have to judge myself is not my neighbor, it's not my spouse, it's not my parents, it's not my children. The standard is God's law. It's what God says I need to do. And as I stand before that standard, I fall on my knees. And my only response is that of silence. And that's what Romans 3 here is driving home. That as God's children stand before the knowledge of God and His will, every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Verse 19. This passage in Romans 3 contains the sharpest indictment of God upon man that's found in all Scripture. And it's quoting from various ports portions of Scripture, as we'll note. There's many other passages where sin is sharply exposed. But this is the sharpest expression of God's judgment upon man. Anyone that stands up and says, I can obey God, I can keep God's commandments, stands condemned by God. There is none. None that understandeth. None that seeketh after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We examine this with the desire that God impress upon us our need for Christ. The knowledge of our misery, noting first of all a difficult knowledge. Secondly, a divine origin, that it has to come from God and by His Spirit. And finally, a humbling reality. The law is God's criteria by which our condition is to be determined. We need to have a criteria. What standard is it that we're going to compare ourselves with? If we're looking for a husband or a wife, we have certain things that we desire to see with regard to that man or that woman. And we're going to measure who we meet against that standard that we have. And that standard isn't just going to be physical. It's going to especially be spiritual. We need a spiritual criteria against which we can measure our condition. Lord's Day point 1 pointed that out. In order to know our comfort, I need to know my current situation. 
my condition, and I need to know my need for it. How do I determine my condition? Again, do we compare ourselves to others? Do we compare ourselves to our parents and the situation in which they live? Do we compare ourselves to others by trying to determine how much debt do we have? How nice is our house? What's the state of our marriage? How successful are our children? Do we compare ourselves with our parents at our age and what they had accomplished at our age in order to figure out now what is my circumstance? Beloved, none of those are sufficient. They merely are going to get at maybe an earthly aspect, but we need to get at the essence, the heart of the matter. And from that perspective then, we need to look at who we are in light of God's law, God's commandments. And we want to get at the heart of it. We want, don't want to just to be messing around with peripheral issues. We know how frustrating that can be if we have a problem. And yet, every time we try to get help, people are just dealing with matters that don't get at the heart of the problem. Maybe we have a medical condition, and we want to get at the heart of what the problem is. And it seems as though the doctor is just dealing with peripheral issues. We want to get at what is the heart of the problem. This is the tragedy. We go through life sometimes for years thinking, I'm pretty good. I compare myself to my parents, and I think I'm doing better than my parents at my age. We compare ourselves to our neighbors. We look around in the pews at church, and we think, boy, look at my children. Look how they turned out compared to that person's. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And we judge our condition then based on our accomplishments, based on what we've done, how we've conducted ourselves, using altogether the wrong criteria. And what's the result of that? We don't ever get at the heart of the problem. We never then know comfort. The criteria by which we have to examine ourselves is God's law. And we have here the law being set before us in Lord's Day 2 in terms of its purpose to convict us and to drive us to see our need for Christ. Now God's law is not just the Ten Commandments, but it's His living will with regard to every creature. God has a rule for every single creature that exists in this world. And God's living rule must be maintained. If a creature tries to live outside of that, they're going to die. God's living rule for fish is to live in the water. If they try to live in the air, they're going to die. God's living rule for birds is to fly in the sky. If they try to live in the water, there's going to be, comp- there's going to be devastating consequences. God has rules for cactus and how cacti are able to grow. God has rules for all the various aspects of his creation. And they flourish within the guidelines that Jehovah God has ordained. To try to survive outside of that is to perish. So also with man. God has ordained guidelines with regard to how men and women are to live. And God's living will with regard to his creatures is love me. Love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what Jesus set forth here in Matthew 22. 
God created man to love him. And man loved God. Adam loved God in every aspect of his being. He served God selflessly. And he was given the understanding of what was right and what was wrong. And God said, love me. Do my will and turn away from everything that's evil. That sphere of love is the calling that God impresses upon us. What is the standard? Here it is. God says, love me. Don't just love me better than your neighbor. Don't just love me better than your spouse. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love me perfectly. That's what the law requires of us. Now, beloved, we stand before that, and we're humbled. I don't love God perfectly. I don't love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I love myself. Now, the Pharisees here in the context of Matthew 22 were trying to trap Jesus. Jesus had demolished the arguments and the attempts of the Sadducees to get him. The Sadducees, you recall, were those who denied the resurrection. They denied miracles. And so they had tried to trap Jesus. But Jesus had exposed their wickedness and their sinfulness and their lack of faith. The Pharisees now thought, what the Sadducees can't do, we're able to accomplish. And they knew the law. They knew all the details of the law. They spent hours arguing over which of the laws were more important than others. And they had decided that and they had criteria that they determined so that they had established this law is more important this law is less important and they took great delight in this activity arguing with each other even allowing it to a degree to divide them as pharisees over which commandments should be viewed higher than other commandments they thought they might be able to get jesus to join them Jesus perhaps would select a a commandment. And they had all kinds of arguments that they could use now to show that Jesus was wrong. And that on the basis of the Old Testament, another commandment was more important than the one that Jesus would set forth. And so they were prepared. They had done their research. They were well argued, knowing every different avenue to take and every way to approach this question. And so now, in glee, they figured they've got Jesus. No matter what he says, they've got arguments to demonstrate that he's wrong. Jesus says, here's the most important commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. And they just stand with their mouths open. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't have any response to that. They prepared themselves for Jesus to say, it's thou shalt not commit adultery or thou shalt not covet. And Jesus reveals, you have no concept of what the law is. You have no concept of what is your calling as you stand before the living God. You're using the wrong criteria. There's no one commandment that's able to be separated from the other of the commandments. And mere outward conformity, that's not what God is pleased with. It's necessary to look at the root of the law. What is that? which lies behind all of the commandments. Love God and love Him in perfection. And show that love now by maintaining all His will in every area of your life. That one root, love God. Paul in Romans 3 here is showing the essence of the law by using passages that the Jews themselves would try to use to disprove their sinfulness. 
The Jews would point to the Old Testament. And they would try to use Old Testament scriptures to justify their sin and their rebellion. Paul says, let's talk about your misery. And let's do it by making use of the Old Testament. And so Paul takes them back to the Psalms. And while they tried to use the Psalms to show how good they were, how capable they were, Paul says, look, here's what the Psalms say. The Psalms say, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Quoting from Psalm 14, from Psalm 36, verse 1. There is none righteous, no, not one. The Old Testament scriptures to which you are clinging reveal right before your eyes your own depravity, your own sinfulness. And those scriptures from the very beginning have taught you can't save yourself. You need a Messiah. You need a Savior. And the whole of the Old Testament was directed to drive the people of God to see their unworthiness and to see their need for the Messiah that God had promised. Paul emphasizes you are under sin. You are failing to keep the essence of the law. And not only you, not only me, every living man and woman falls under that condemnation. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world guilty before God. There's not one. There's not any that can rise up and say, but I don't fall under that condemnation. Everyone finds themselves in that despicable condition. And that's what we see reflected in the confessions that God has entrusted to us. Through the ages, God, by His Spirit, leading men to draft that which is a summary faithfully of His Word. We see that in Belgic Confession, Article 15, in the handout that was set forth. The reality that Adam's disobedience affected the whole human race. And by virtue of that disobedience of Adam, original sin now is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature and hereditary disease. The children cannot escape what their parents have. That sin is passed on now from parent to child, wherewith infants themselves are infected even in their mother's womb, and which produces in man all sorts of sin, being in him as a root thereof, and therefore is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it's sufficient to condemn all mankind. That's the reality of the situation in which we find ourselves. We find ourselves now under the curse of the law. And the result is that we cannot love God. We will not love God. Love is the one exclusive commandment which reveals the living will of God for all men. And God then comes to you and me and he says, you need to love me with all of your heart. To love God with all of your heart is to acknowledge him as the highest good and to seek him above all, to seek his will in everything, to rejoice in him, to trust in him alone. Love is willing to experience the loss of everything that seems dear to me for the sake of the one who is the object of my love. That means that my love for God is willing to forsake my sin my lusts, my desires. Because I love God so much that I'm willing to say no to everything that I would delight in or that I would desire. 
It's to direct all things to the end that God has determined, His glory and His honor. To love God is to have your whole life in harmony with His will. And that love for God is exclusive. You can't be loving anyone else alongside of God. You love God alone. Either that or you serve two masters. Our Lord didn't evade the issue when confronted by the Pharisees. He gave the Pharisees the root of the law. He doesn't provide here two commandments, one being greater in that sense. There's one grand commandment, love God. And the second is like unto the first. The second is the expression of the first. How do I love God? By loving my neighbor. They're not of equal value. They're not of equal force. The second is rooted in the first. We cannot love the neighbor unless the love of God is the motivation of our lives. And so Jesus bases this upon the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets include the whole of the Old Testament Scripture. And so Jesus, in Matthew 22, is saying to the Pharisees, on the basis of the whole of the Old Testament, which you hold in high regard and you cherish, this is the truth. You've missed the point. Arguing over which commandment is more important than another, you've missed it. This is what the law and the prophets teach. The whole Bible teaches this living command of God. Love God above all else. And the only way to escape God's wrath and hatred is if you can demonstrate that you are loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That that which characterizes you is perfect obedience to God in love for Him. Now, beloved, God works in us an awareness that I failed. The knowledge of my sin is not merely of me. Its origin is of God. God alone is able to work that wonder in the hearts of His children, and He will. And God impresses upon us the fact that love is not just an activity. Love has to do with the very essence of my being, who I am and what I am. Love is a question of my nature. My standing before God is not merely a matter of me doing some things that are pleasing to Him, keeping some commandments, doing things a little better maybe than someone else. It's not just that I'm better than those who are outside the church. After all, they don't even go to church. Therefore, I show myself to be a bit better, more moral than they. Our standing before God is based on who I am. Not what I've done. Who I am. And again, we know the history. As that history is laid out clearly in the canons of Dort, as it's laid out in the third and fourth head there, as it's laid out in Belgic Confession, Article 14, God created man good. God created man able perfectly to love him in Adam. But then Adam fell into sin. And by virtue of that fall, lost that love of God. And now Adam passes that hatred toward God and that love for the devil to the whole human race. We can't fault God, and we're going to note that in the next Lord's Days. What is the origin of this misery? Is it God's fault? Did God make me in a way that... No, no, it's not God's fault. God made me good. But in Adam, I fell into sin. And as a result of that now, 
by nature, I am unable to love God. Now, by nature, I'm also unable to see my misery. I'm unable to acknowledge that misery. But God works His grace in my heart that exposes that understanding and that knowledge. As we stand before God's will, and as we stand before God's commandments, we hear God's word, and week after week, the question is, what are you? What am I? What are you seeking? Are you living for yourself, or are you living for God? What are you as to your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength? And what am I? And to that question, God himself reveals the answer. He says, as you stand before me and as you stand before my word, here is who you are and what you are. You are a sinner. You are a sinner worthy of everlasting death. Now God works his spirit in our heart, causing us not only to make that confession, but to say, And I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the wonder by which I've been rescued from that death. And I've been given a Savior so that my only comfort is that I'm joined to Him. That's my only hope. The fruit of God's divine work in my heart and in my soul is for me to see my unworthiness and to see my need for Christ. To see I am wrong. I am prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. I am a sinner who deserves everlasting condemnation in hell. By the grace of God, I see who I am by nature. By nature, I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with His will. I don't want to love Him. I want to love myself. I want to pursue my own way. I always am going to put sin above God and my love for God. I'm only interested in my flesh. Apart from Christ, I despise God and His Word. Beloved, that's the confession that God humbly brings us to see. Of myself, I'm a hater. So that the believer standing before the living law of love can only say, I'm prone to hatred. I'm not prone to love. I'm prone to hatred. By nature, I'm filled with that hatred. The canons in the third and fourth head, article 3, Therefore, all men are conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, nor to dispose themselves to reformation. We can't do anything of ourselves. We are completely dependent upon God coming to us, God in love rescuing us. And so as we stand before God's commandments and as we stand before His law, what is our response? Love is again that question. And the only way that we can love God is if God would give us to know that love in Jesus Christ. And so as we stand before the living God, sin isn't a matter of outward conduct. It's a matter of my nature. The semi-Pelagian insists sin is just a matter of what I do. It's a matter of imitation. Wickedness is not in my nature, it's in the deed. And therefore, every, they would say, baby is born as a blank slate. They're born neutral. And now whatever 
evil comprises them is just based on what they've done and how they've imitated others. Note how the Belgic Confession at the end of Article 15 rejects that error. Wherefore, we reject the error of the Pelagians who assert that sin proceeds only from imitation. In other words, we're neutral, we're okay, but we just imitate others. That's what causes us to be sinful. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches I, as to my very nature, am corrupt. The Arminian says, but we're very, very sick. We're so sick that we really are not able to do very much to help ourselves, but with just a little help, man can heal himself. He's not dead in sin. And again, the Bible is clear. Man is dead. He's not just sick. He's dead. And a dead person can do nothing to revive himself. He needs someone else to act on him. What is the assessment? I hate God's will for my life. I oppose him at every occasion according to my nature. I envy my neighbor when my neighbor is placed in a position above me. I don't love my neighbor I'm so far removed from walking in love by nature that I am filled with that hatred. And that hatred too often expresses itself in my life. And what is the end of hatred? Death and hell. God will destroy everyone who walks in hatred toward him. They stand outside of his revealed will and they are subject then to his wrath and condemnation. I, by nature... I'm a hater. Now, beloved, it's terrible to stand before the wrath of a holy and righteous God. We must not fool ourselves. Sin is serious business. Hatred is serious. God will punish all those who walk in hatred with everlasting damnation. And the only way of escape is through Jesus Christ. The only way is through one who stands in my place, takes that punishment upon himself, and sets me free. Beloved, do you believe that? Do I believe that? When we hear the law read, what's our response? Does it prick us? Or are we continually saying, oh, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. I've done better than others. Does it open your eyes to the need for Christ and the fact that I cannot do this perfectly? And God demands nothing less than absolute perfection of mankind. Beloved, the result by God's grace is that I see myself as lost, hopeless, doomed. I'm silenced before the presence of the holiness of God. I don't just know that there's something wrong with me by nature. I know that that wrath of God is revealed from heaven against my unrighteousness and ungodliness because I am guilty in Adam. But beloved... Not only do I confess, oh, wretched man that I am, God also brings me to the beautiful confession, but thanks be to God for the victory that is in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the revelation that God has given of a Savior. God has not allowed us to continue in blindness. He's not allowed us to continue in the depravity of our nature, but He's opened our eyes. He's revealed to us that which is our hope and our joy. And He gives us to make as our prayer Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Christ died, not for the righteous, but for sinners, for the ungodly. And we thank God for the unspeakable gift that he's given us of a Savior.
What then is our conclusion? I stand condemned before God. I cannot do anything of myself to escape that condemnation. I need a Savior. And without that Savior, I will die and I will be punished in hell everlastingly. But I look to God and I cry out to Him who has given me to know by faith Jesus Christ and the hope that is in Him. Beloved, this is a humbling reality. And the Catechism addresses it such when it uses the terminology can in question answer 5. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? Every word of that question and answer is filled with significance. And we need to understand clearly what that question is saying. It's saying, do you know yourself to be unable to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The question isn't, do you see a need for a Savior? Most people in the world would say, oh yeah, I, I think I could use a Savior. The idea is not, do you think that you need someone to help cleanse you from sin? No, the Roman Catholics, the Arminians, they all believe and they confess, I need a Savior. I need someone to help me. They see a need for Jesus, but they don't see that They need Jesus alone. They need Jesus plus their own works, plus their own prayers, plus saints, or whatever else. Are you so corrupt that your only hope is that Jesus comes to you? That you're dead. That you can't do anything of yourself to escape. And that you are completely dependent upon God coming to you, seeking you out, and restoring you to life. That's the humbling, beloved confession to which God brings us. Canst thou keep? That is, can you keep the law of God perfectly? How do you compare to the norm that God has established? The question isn't, do you? The question isn't, will you? The question is, can you? And you see how that gets at then the very reality of any possibility. Can I do anything possibly that would be pleasing in God's eyes apart from his grace? Can I keep it? Can the law save me? Do I put my confidence in my own ability or in the law? And again, no. What the law could never do, Christ did for us as the third and fourth head of the canons in Article 5 point out. The answer of the catechism here is the answer of faith. The child of God standing before the revelation of God's holiness can only respond in one way, in no wise. He's silenced and his head is bowed in humility. There's no way by nature that I can attain the standard that God has set before me. The reply of the catechism is that of one who knows his greatest comfort. That greatest comfort as it's found in Christ. And beloved, that's your and my confession by God's grace. I know my sinful nature. And I know that that nature yet cleaves to me. Though I know victory in Jesus Christ, though I know the wonder of the salvation that's in Him, can I perfectly maintain God's commandments? No. My nature remains yet with me until I die. Notice that qualification, that important qualification. I am prone by nature 
to hate God and my neighbor. As a new creature in Christ, I love God, but that love never is ever going to attain to the perfection that God requires of me because my nature is still with me until I die. And by nature then, I cannot, I will not. There's no way I can attain that standard. Beloved, it's a humbling reality to see that my sinful condition is the occasion of such great misery. And to know that it's my fault. I can't blame anyone else. It's the way that I was born because of the sin of Adam, which is my sin. And what's the result? By nature, I don't stand in a relationship of love toward God. I don't stand in a relationship of friendship. Rather, hatred and wrath is where I'm at. By God's grace, I can pass that judgment on myself. By nature, we're tempted to make all kinds of excuses and to argue, but I'm not so bad. After all, look at me. Look at, look at what I've done. Look at, look at this aspect of my life. We want to blame all our weaknesses on other people. It's, it's my parents. It's how they raised me. It's these influences that I had in my life. The Word comes to us and says, can you, can you personally do anything by nature that's pleasing by God? Anything that would get you closer to God? Can you live your whole life out of the principle of love toward God? In all things, perfectly. God demands perfection, nothing less. And beloved, we're silenced by the blackness of our own hearts, our own natures, we're silenced. What help is it to be a little better than someone else if I'm still black and vile? Our pride wants to say something, but by grace, God silences us. And we give up then all of our arguing as we stand before the verdict of God. We don't respond, yes, but. If we're still saying that, then we haven't understand the truth of God. If you're saying, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. I know I'm sinful, but... Then you don't understand the horror of your sin. The Scripture has no comfort for one who keeps on making excuses and tries to escape. The believer stands in silence before the presence of God and acknowledges... I am a sinner and I am sinful. And I am completely dependent upon God and the wonder of His grace. Lord, help me. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, so humble us. Grant us to know that our salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. Work in us by Thy Spirit a true sorrow for that sin, a true confession of our own inability to do anything of ourselves, to deliver ourselves from that bondage and teach us that our only comfort is found in our union to Jesus Christ. Amen.